Good morning. Welcome to the roundtable and to our panel discussion. Very nice to have you with us on this Wednesday morning. Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday Wednesday. morning. Yes. Um, I I was realizing this as I was getting coffee at the uh, at the machine this morning. I, I, I seem to be in a disproportionately good mood. (laughs) <laughs> how does that feel i you know just a ray of sunshine a little a little it, it puts me a little off kilter quite frankly i'm not i'm not quite used to being that much of a ray of sunshine at that time uh, and, and i don't think it's just the the prospect of coffee i think it's just you know life kind of putting you in that lane like all right let's go so, Maybe you heard about all the people who replied to Elmo, and yeah. you're like, well, I feel so well, much better than those I, people, so I, I guess I'm you, happy. I will tell you, I that was soul-crushing to me. There's a story, and we're going to talk about it today. I have it on our uh, on our docket. And uh, Elmo put out, uh, the, the, for those of you who don't know, well, first of all, for those of you who don't know, Elmo is a Muppet. And a very popular character on Sesame Street, who's been around for years, was originated uh, by Kevin Clash, who then left, and and um, there is another puppeteer doing it now, and 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 was and was one of the last Muppets to come from the mind of a Jim Henson before his untimely death, and and then just became, you know, huge. Well, uh, this is the part you may not know is that Sesame Street and the uh, Sesame Street Workshop. Um, has an incredible web presence. They they do a really great social media, uh, have a really great social media presence, on Instagram and and um, and on uh, even Facebook and and X and so forth. So uh, Elmo posted a a um, a, a question um, on on Monday asking, "How do you feel today?" And they got like 20 million responses, many from little children. And they're like, I think the way I put it, and as I was sending the story out, is almost bummed. Like <laughs> it's, it is, it's just soul crushing because it's there's just all this negative stuff. Just maybe why you feel better. Yeah. Well, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take that, Elmo. Um, no, but I. I thought. Oh, well, that's really that's interesting. So we'll mm. we'll talk about that this this morning. It's um, fascinating. I uh, one of those things you just try to uh, helps you with a barometer of the world. I think. Um, I also thought it was interesting, but that story was. All over last night. That was the front page of the Wall Street Journal, of the New York Times, of Washington Post, of the Guardian. Of the <laughs> it was it was a story that struck a lot of people. I think for obvious reasons. We'll talk about it later on. Let us welcome our panel this morning, and then we will get to inviting you, and then we'll actually get into the conversation. Dean of the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security and Cybersecurity at the University at Albany, Bob Griffin. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good, good morning, Joe, and optimistic and, and uh, happy as, as always. So um, I, am, I, am, I am here. You are here. I am here. That's right. <laughs> you know, that's that's half of it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, just a really interesting historical tidbit. T- today, in 1865, Congress actually passed the 13th Amendment <clears throat> to abolish slavery. Wow. Let me just toss this out to everybody. Do you think today Congress could get the votes to actually pass a bill to abolish slavery? I, I don't think so. Yeah. 
Yeah, it says a lot, but you know, we should we should think about. I mean, that I could as, be wrong, but I I don't. It seems like it would be it, something that should be such a no-brainer. But I really question the ability to do even something that basic um, from out of Congress right now. I, I mean, read the read the article about Mayorkas. Yeah, and then turn around and say, okay, this is what they're this is what they're worried about. So yeah, um, yeah. Um, if you were in a good Apologies. mood, yeah, are you still? You were so- yeah. Thanks for bursting that bubble, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> nice job, buddy. Uh, Nick oh. Rangel is here, executive director of the Legal Aid Society of North- Northeastern New York. And uh, I was thinking of you the other day. I was just, uh, not only am I proud that I know you, but I'm also proud. The, the work you do is just amazing. I was I was listening um, to a little bit of, of our program, and we, we repeat some of the stuff on, on, on the weekend. And um, I just thought, my God, we're lucky to have uh, Nick on the program. And my God, we're lucky to have you in our region doing the work that you do. Uh, it's really incredible, and I, um, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's really good. You are in a good mood. <laughs> now I'm in a better mood. You know, we're we're uh, holding actually the third of a uh, series of four picturing justice artist talks tonight uh, in Schenectady at the Nest from six to eight. But we're displaying one of the winning uh, photographs that now hang in our building as part of uh, a series asking the question, "What does justice mean to you?" in photographs. And Professor Melissa Brager, who works at Albany Law School and is a dear friend of mine, is presenting her piece tonight. So we're really excited to connect with the community and have those those discussions. Well, those discussions seems like they, seem like they would be very um, important and very uh, interesting. Also, uh, again, good on you for um, having a conversation that, that, that not only talks about these important issues, but also brings creativity and the arts into it, which is, is so important. Uh, speaking of creativity in the arts, we go to director, actor, educator, and co-founder of Wham Theater, uh, Kristen Van Jinhoven. Good morning, Kristen. How are you? I'm also very good. I'm also very good. I was talking with Bob about how, what a beautiful winter wonderland it is in the Berkshires right now, and driving here closer and closer to Albany, it was like less and less of a winter I was wonderland. Say, Bob and I were Bob talking about like, that too. Bob was like, "I'm <laughs> sick of January already," and I was like, "Well." It's so beautiful, and my sister's in Florida, and you would think that like everyone would want to be there, but she misses winter so much, and so I was sending her all these pictures and videos of how beautiful the trees look and going cross-country skiing this weekend. I mean, come on. Yeah. We're very lucky. We are lucky. We're absolutely lucky, and there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to enjoy in the in the region, and and to uh, to celebrate. So hopefully we get a chance every once in a while to look up from what we're doing and do exactly that. Let me introduce, uh, remind you that you can be a part of the program and simply write to us, panel at wamc.org, panel at wamc.org. About 19 minutes ago, Bob said, what's the first story going to be? And 19 minutes later, I say to him, it's about the Biden response decision. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I said, let me open up my computer, then we got going. Okay, here we go. Um, so we, we've been talking about this for several days now, and we'll continue to uh, talk about it, the widening Mideast crisis. An Iraqi militia blamed for a lethal attack says it will stop targeting U.S. forces. The announcement from a militia allied with Iran came as President Biden says his decision has been made on how to respond to a drone attack in Jordan that killed three service members. 
I do not believe at this point uh, he has decided on a response, um, but I do not believe he has made that um, has has said exactly what that's going to be. He spoke yesterday saying that he decided on a response to the drone attack on a remote outpost in Jordan that killed three Americans and injured more than 40 others, leaving unstated what that decision was. Asked by reporters outside the White House whether he had decided on a response to the lethal attack, Mr. Biden said yes. No further details were provided. So that leads us to um, sort of think of I we were reading um, uh, we talked about an article yesterday where the word we were talking about the issue. But I mentioned an article that was written in The Washington Post in which they the headline was Biden's treacherous political decision. So with all of that together of realizing that the president at least according to him, has made a decision of uh, the treachery involved in that. Bob? Well, it's, it's an interesting response um, from, from, Bi- from, from Biden. And, and the, um, the, sim- the simple answer of yes sends such a powerful message that there is a policy direction. It is, is being implemented um, it will be carried out at the, the time and place of, of our choosing, um, but make no no mistake that there 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 will be a response. Um, and and I think some of the things we, we've saw even as recently as as today um, or earlier today, where elements of Hezbollah have said um, that that they're 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 no longer going to target the U.S. forces. Um, the belief there is the pressure from Iraq and Iran. Um, I'll also note that there's a lot of interesting language coming out of Paris about um, a, a three-stage um, potential hostage deal. Um, I, I don't know if it's complete cessation of, of the war in Gaza, but it seems like it's much further ahead. Um, and then when you couple that with some some very interesting um, positions being taken, like the Washington Post editorial um, board came out with a, with a, a requirement for a tough response. And that was the, the words that they used. Um, really, I think advocating for um, an, an increase in in, uh, in 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 the tempo of American response and and, um, and and I think in military action. And then the Wall Street Journal came out with an editorial questioning Netanyahu. Um, whether the policy in Israel is truly about what's good for Israel or what's good for Netanyahu. So there's an awful lot of, of work, uh, a lot of, of churn around this area that I think we should be talking about. Um, the the other element I want to toss on the table, Joe, is the British Foreign Secretary came out saying that there, there is a willingness on, on behalf of the United Kingdom to potentially recognize um, a Palestinian state um, re- regardless of, of Netanyahu's mm-hmm. position. So lots of things to, to, for us to talk about here. Absolutely. So when – and we, again, have been talking about this all week because uh, Republicans, beginning with Lindsey Graham um, on Sunday, talking about how strong the president's response should should be. And I keep on asking the question, what does that look like? Do we know what a strong response looks like? Because we can say that, but anything, especially with the Republican leadership, is anything going to be good enough? And and whatever happens as a result is still going to come back and say it was either too strong or not strong enough. 
if if I could jump in before the other, I, I don't want to take all the time from the other panelists, but um, I, I I I really dislike the the the, the macho testosterone driven response from people like Senator Cotton from Arkansas. Um, you know, it, it's not about being wimpy. It's about being strategic. Um, and and I, I think there's there needs to be an appropriate level of response that that shows that you you cannot target American service people um, or, or citizens at the same time in, in overreaction right now will will potentially expand to a war. So that that's that's the tightrope that that Biden is walking. Um, but the language that I saw out of the, the, the Sunday news shows, um, the sort of the, the, the chest beating, um, how, does, how do you rectify that with the, the GOP's policy um, positions on, on foreign, foreign intervention? And I will also note part of the weakness in that st- part of the, the world is because of the, the, the drawdown that Trump did in the final days of his administration, which completely weakened our position and was it was fought by the Pentagon it was ordered by Trump and it ended out finally being carried out by by Biden so there, there's a lot to play here also mm-hmm. I, I would just add that to uh, how do you rectify that also with the positions that are being taken now on Ukraine also also um, how do you not only rectify it but how do you define it what I, I don't yeah. even know what they're what exactly what is being asked for Nick Rangel. Yeah, and of course there are, you know, we aren't faced with only choices that involve violence. Does it have to be a violent response or a military response? It can be economic response. It can um, involve our partners in the region and, you know, the the that closeness that we actually do have that relies on the collaboration between the those those nations. So, you know, I. I think it's smart for Biden not to tell the world like this is what our response is because right. that's not really that's uh, not how you st- do it. It's not a it's not a great <laughs> strategy if you're playing you know war. But um, but we I think we have to be really creative and thoughtful about the many different tools um, that that we have uh, and how much leverage we have in different pockets. Hmm. Kristen, we have about two minutes and certainly more time on the other side of the break. Yeah, I have found it really fascinating over the last 24 hours just to see how quickly some of the news coverage has shifted, right, in its tone. As soon as he said, you know, we've been learning about all the intense negotiations that have been going on behind the scenes. You have the prime minister of Iraq saying this has to stop. You have the militia backing off saying we're going to stop attacks. So they crossed the line. Right. They crossed the line with that attack. And those intense negotiations have been going on for months. And so now by crossing that line and getting too close to another, you know, escalating too much, taking lives, um, that has changed everything. And I'm this feels like a win for democracy. It came too late, unfortunately, um, way too late. But it does feel that there is a chance that by saying yes, by I'm sure there are all kinds of conversations going on behind the scenes with the prime minister and Biden and and folks from those that they have successfully gotten at least one of the three militias to back off. Hopefully we'll hear about the other two, because I ultimately I don't think anybody wants another war. 
Right. And so, yes, Biden does have to figure out, is he going to, you know, reengage diplomatically? Is he going to strike Iran's assets? Is he going to strike outside of Iran? He has to do something. As you pointed out, Joe, nothing is going to be sufficient. There's always, you know, he's there's never a winning response here. He does have to take action, but ultimately it does seem that the re-engagement of the diplomacy and um, those militias backing off and saying they're not going to attack anymore, that we're moving in the right direction towards de-escalation. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation and get into much more detail, as Bob alluded to a moment ago. We welcome your letters and your thoughts on this complex issue. All we ask is that you keep your thoughts uh, short and to the point, and that is only not because you're not brilliant, simply because we want to get to as many letters as possible, and I'd rather you do the editing than me. Panel at WAMC.org. Panel at WAMC.org is how you get the letters to us. We'll continue our conversation after this news update from the BBC. Good morning. Welcome back to the roundtable and to our panel discussion this morning. Bob Griffin, Nick Rangel, Kristen Van Ginhoven making up the group. I'm Joe Donahue. And we welcome you, panel at WAMC.org. We did get this letter from Patrick who said, Joe said he was in a good mood. Maybe it's because it's Irene's birthday. Irene is a faithful, longtime listener to the Roundtable, and you guys very often read her letters. She would really get a kick out of a mention or shout-out for her birthday. Love the show. Well, we can certainly say happy Absolutely. birthday. Happy, happy birthday, birthday Irene. Irene. That is yeah. really cool. Uh, yes. We do know Irene, and it's very nice. A loyal listener and somebody who's been with us for a very long time, and we're thrilled uh, that she is part of the family and even more thrilled that she's celebrating a special day today. So mm-hmm. good, good on Irene, and thank you, Patrick, for letting us know. We appreciate that. Um, the good commerce scale just went up, so thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah that's good. It's yeah. good. Yeah, I, I know by the end of the show, we're just going to be wishing kitty cats happy birthday. You know that, <laughs> that's, but that's, that's all right. Um, Daniel writes to us and says, yes, President Biden is doing a good job, but he will need a makeover to attract the middle voters. Somehow, in some way, he's got to get by Republicans blocking border reform. This topic is the albatross around his neck. We'll talk about this today as well, but um, it, it's it's a big issue, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I know locally there are a lot of conversations about how to help and assist and serve the uh, asylum seeker and migrants who are, are kind of you know, coming into upstate New York, but at the national level those conversations are happening and they're just not happening fast enough or with enough um, efficacy, um, and it's it's tragic. I think so, but I, I think, um, you know, what would trump immigration um, is the economy or if we got into a war. I mean, seriously, if you, if, if you think about the, the roots of a, of a potential um, world war, you, you could see it here. You see, you, you see a potential expansion of, of um, open warfare with first, I, uh, first the proxies, but then potentially Iran. Um, you 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 could see where the domino would then um, roll over to Russian support for Iran, given what's going on with the Ukraine. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you have um, a, a much larger situation. So his his response here is is absolutely critical um, because it's a there there's a 
a lot of, of potential reactions to this that nobody would want. And, and I think, Judd, that this is why you're starting to see a, a lot of pressure um, on these groups from both Iraq and Iran is that they, they realize that they, they have overstepped. Um, and now we need to make sure that while we, we have a strong but measured response, we don't overstep. Kristen? Yeah, and something I heard last night was we have to be really careful to be when we're talking about border control versus immigration because they are really different. And on the, there's so much to unpack around all of it, but we definitely, in response to the panelists, are seeing a huge politicization of it leading up to the election. I think it's true that the Republicans don't want to solve it because they want to have this as a election issue that would work in their favor. And I also think that, you know, Biden initially wanted to approach this with compassion and humanity, and that's all well and good. But if you don't have funding and infrastructure, then you're not going to be able to follow through on being able to do it that way. And so those two combined means that it's it's likely not going to be solved anytime soon, either the border security or the immigration. Let's go to this letter from Martha, who says, while my heart breaks for the families of the service members who were killed in the drone attack, when will we ever learn that we can't bomb our way to peace? Bombing will beget bombing, and violence begets more violence. How about a strategy which builds on peace building? Isn't that a better legacy and memorial to the dead? Mm. I mean, we did see Hezbollah say they would back off, and there has not been a, a military strike to, to force that. So I do think that there are um, uh, negotiations happening that are intentionally and, and very smartly trying to avoid an escalation that would lead to to more bombing, you know. And we are hearing, which we're going to discuss as well, like what's happening in Qatar and how like all of those negotiations over months and months and months seem like, from what we're hearing, hopefully, are leading to a second ceasefire that can potentially lead to the end of that war. So I think all of that is going on behind the scenes, but that is not as exciting news as all of the continued, you know, explosions and the images that are breaking all of our hearts as we see the wars happening both in Israel and Gaza and also in, in the Ukraine and around the world. Bob? Sometimes I, I think Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt was right that, you know, the best foreign policy is speak softly and carry a big stick. You just, but you don't always have to swing swing the stick. And and I, I think, unfortunately, that, that sort of has moved up on, on the options. So I, I agree that um, when necessarily you, you, we use force, but it doesn't always have to be the first the, the first answer. Um, I think over the last eight, eight years or so, um, we've we've taken some really big step back in in some really important programs, things like USAID. So so um, you know what do we do to foreign aid? Because when when people are happy in their in their homes. Then they're they're not trying to, to cross the border. They're 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 not trying to 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 attack our, our interests. Um, we we have cut back on on a lot of exchange programs, which would would bring students or or artists or business leaders here, so that they that they see we're we're not we're, we're not the devil that their governments make us out to be. Um, so so I, what I'm saying in a really long way is that. Um, there, there are so many tools that I think we need to use in, in this world to overcome the disinformation and hate that's out there. It's unfortunate, though, when so much of it is coming from, from, the, from this country or even coming from our own 
leadership, not in the Biden administration necessarily, but certainly in the leadership in Congress, um, that there, there's, there is an awful lot of vitriol out there right now. I, I don't, uh, of course, a lot of, uh, as you say, the Republicans uh, have been beating their chests and saying we need to do this, this, and this. And, uh, okay, but, uh, and I'm, I'm, I usually don't go after the press too much uh, because most of the panelists are journalists and I'm afraid they'll gang up on me. <laughs> but I, I, I have really been, I, I, was, I was really... Um, I don't know. Uh, moved isn't the right word. I, I I was struck by the word uh, treacherous used in the in the uh, a treacherous political decision um, was what the is how the Washington Post characterized what Joe Biden had to come up with in a response. And I thought to myself, well, first of all, I think anything involving human life and our troops is treacherous. Mm -hmm. I also I also think that I don't let's let's not worry about the political as much as 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 diplomacy as 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 much as um what is what is good for us uh as as a foreign policy and as a as a way to somehow get to the aforementioned peace that we have um been discussing. And again, I'll, I'll uh, sound like a broken record, but I, again, I don't understand this. If you can't define it of what that is, then how are you going to get to it? And I, I, I also finally, and this is probably the most unfair thing I will say on this, which is I, it seems as though there is the, the intimation in many of these opinion articles and, and articles on this that, uh, well, look, it's up to this guy to to bring peace to the Middle East. <laughs> well, and, and you know, really, like I, I, you have a you have a piece of the puzzle, certainly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I I don't understand this the sort of the enormity of of what they're asking to do in response to the death, the tragic death, and the tragic um, injuring of dozens of soldiers. Um, but, but Joe, it's even worse, though, because what they're saying first is it's not just peace in the Middle East. It's vengeance first. Right. OK. Right. It's it's some sort of miracle um, a, a agreement that would would overcome, you know, millennia of 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 hate and warfare. And he needs to do it without um, expending any resources um, or, or or tax dollars or, res or or American resources going over. I mean, if you think about the box that 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 he is put into, um, you have to have some sympathy. The, the other other element of it is that sometimes for for policymakers, and this is a great example, there isn't a good answer. And the the question now is what what is the least bad policy direction that, that we could take, knowing that there is some potential catastrophic cliffs if we're not careful about it and thoughtful about it, which is why I, I'll push back on the, on the, on the, the Post, Washington Post editorial board. That was not a helpful editorial from, from the editorial board, in my mind. No, it definitely didn't forward what you know, we're all thinking is, is a healthier way forward. This is where I think about the decades and decades and decades that Biden has had experience being in the government and seeing over the course of 50 years 
all of the history and all of the complexities of the Middle East. You know, I mean, again, it's nobody has been able to single-handedly solve that. It's certainly being much further away from any solution now than it was 30 years ago or before October 7th. And it was always a, a very complex, nuanced situation. So I gain comfort from all that, knowing that Biden understands that deeply from his long legacy of being in power. And he isn't going to come in with a simplified thing of, oh, well, I can just do this and this and this. He also has a very clear sense of how America is seen around the world, which most Americans do not, right? We don't really have a strong sense of of how we're perceived as a whole outside of this country. So I think those two things serve us well. He can keep his feet on the ground and keep um, perspective in terms of understanding what are the things he can do that help us move the dial in the direction that globally we want to go. If you Google the Washington Post, Biden and treacherous, you'll see that that editorial board uses the word kind of frequently. Yeah. It, I, <laughs> just, I, I, just to clarify. Biden and treacherous come up often. <laughs> um, a crutch. But um, just just to clarify, mm-hmm. the the um, what was used yesterday was in an article. It was not in an opinion piece. It was it was in it was in their coverage sure. of what was happening and um, the uh, the treacherous political decision. And I just I, I was again, I was struck by that wording. Um, but yes, I mean, I think we, we, we tend to uh, use uh, we, we try to stir the pot a little bit. And these adjectives well, are getting, you know, worse and worse and worse as time goes on. The words they're using are well, across the board. Bee. It's clickbait. Exactly. Right? You're like, ooh, treacherous. Ugh. Like, mm-hmm. well, I was you know, Mufasa. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, just like Mufasa. <laughs> we were. Um, I was thinking of this during the during the um, uh, New Hampshire primary. You know, the most important night of uh, the of of the right. political season. Well, no, no. breaking no. news. No, Break- I mean, we, yes. everyone knows. Like, this is the <laughs> biggest day of Nikki Haley's life. Well, we all know what's going to happen. Like, it's just you know, it's it's a lot of right to clickbait to get mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. I mean, we don't, you know, we all play the same game at, at, at certain times. Um, but I, I think when you're when you're talking about war and you're talking about human life and you're talking about soldiers and you're and you're putting pressure on mm-hmm. a president to act in some way and are and God forbid the administration takes its time to think it through then you're not acting fast enough. But you're talking about things like integrity and dignity and respect and value. And those words are not often associated with the press at large. But, but you know, we've seen this dance before, and this is what worries me, is that you, you, you think about prior to the invasion of Iraq, the, the vitriol that was in the press, the, the language that was being used, the urging, uh, the urging of the administration that, that we had to, to, to stand up and the weapons of mass destruction. And, mm-hmm. and you know, that, that's why I, I, I really push back on, the, on the, the Post editorial board right now, because if, if Biden does follow um, their, their urgings, are you going to stand by the policies he put in place? 
and and all of the impacts that that that, that occur that that occurs and and you know if, if you're going to advocate for this position then then ethically you should stand by you have to stand by that so when something goes you know down the road poorly that you realize that that was your urging they won't do it but it it would still be nice to know that they have some responsibility to it we'll take a break when we come back we'll continue our discussion we have many more letters on this and then we'll move on to other things as well we welcome you panel at wamc.org we'll be right back good morning welcome back to the roundtable and to our panel discussion this morning sandra writes to us and says a topic i would love to hear discussed would trump automatically get a security clearance if he became president again with the insurrection theft of classified documents impeachments etc no one else would be issued a security clearance would trump question mark and if not is that an issue to campaign on yeah, if I could yes. answer that question, yes, he would, because the president automatically does. And not only that, but Trump can also um, decide who gets clearances and who doesn't. So you think about a situation like Jared Kushner, who I, I, they went through all of the background checks and he found that he was unfit to hold um, a security clearance that was overridden by Trump. So so Trump can also decide who, who gets it, regardless of what, what policies were in place. And... Those are the kinds of things uh, that you have to factor into your decision when you're voting, right? I mean, this is this is what if you're worried about this, then maybe this is something that should factor. Into yeah, I mean, he I mean, he had more highly classified documents in his bathroom than he did toilet paper. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we should all all remember I mean, we should all, all remember the history of this guy. Bob, what about um, Gorka couldn't get security clearance, and I don't think Trump overrode that. I think he. I think that fired was more. I like think six or seven months. That's more of a decision. If if uh, the president really wants to push, play. right? Yeah, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. How many how many security clearances do you give out, Pez dispenser? <laughs> <laughs> well, anytime you have a new administration come in, you think about it. They're they're mostly um, new. Um, you have a lot of folks who may be returning to government, but there, there's a whole slew of folks that are that are getting security clearances. Um, it, it's probably one of the most vulnerable times we have because there are so many that that sometimes the searches are are either um, not thorough enough or they're they're disqualifying people for for minor issues that if they had a more thoughtful process they would have been able to look at. Going back to 2017, remember the first days of the of the Trump administration. Very and, well. And there was, <laughs> a, there was a, 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 a hoo-ha down at, uh, at um, uh, Mar-a-Lago. And one of the attendees of a wedding uh, got a selfie holding the, the football, the, 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 yeah. the, the codes. And um, th there was a great deal of discussion, including on this program, you know, is, is that okay? And what we ultimately found out is, well, it shouldn't be okay, but he really no laws were violated, and it's and if the president hands the guy the football, there's really not much that you can do about it, and um, it just seems to me we should clear some of that up. Well, but <laughs> it, but again, this is the problem: is that it's it's norms and common sense and expectation that a president is going to always at least try to act in the best interest of the United States. Um, you could disagree with if that's if if you agree with that or not, and then you get Trump, and it has and and it has nothing to do with any of those issues. He's he's a grifter and a con man. And for those of you that are going to write in and say, "Oh, there Griffin goes again," 
talk to me about the $50 million that he took out of donations to pay for his legal legal bills. It, even him running now isn't about what's good for the country. It's about what can keep him out of jail and put more money in his pocket, which is why I continue to be amazed that anybody would vote for this man. Let's go back to letters. I'm sorry, did I cut you off? No. All right. Uh, Mary says, Jimmy Carter lost in 1980. I still believe because he was too busy doing his job dealing with the hostage crisis, et cetera, et cetera, and didn't have the time or energy to campaign. Biden seems to be in a similar situation. A president who chooses to focus on their job is making the right decision, but no good deed goes unpunished. Mm -hmm. I I think it's way too early for Biden to be coming out swinging. It's a marathon, and we're at the beginning of it. I think it's the right move to save some of those those bigger talking points for later in the camp on the campaign path. I also think he is betting on that it's going to be him against Trump again. And what he has to do is get the, you know, 25 to 30 million people who want to vote against Trump, who are Republican, he has to convince them to do so. And the same with the independents, right? Because the people that are going to vote for Biden, those 65 million people are going to vote for him anyway. And so he just has to figure out how to once again do the voting against somebody else. You know, it would certainly be nice to have a presidential election where you're voting for somebody and not against somebody. But that's why I think he's biding his time. And to your earlier point, um, Bob, of like thoughtful decision making, it's very, you know, how is that even possible, right? Being president is like a 24-7 job. Then you're supposed to campaign. Then you're supposed to make these quick decisions. And as we're finding out, a lot of these things that were assumptions around the type of dignified behavior that an elected official would have, but was never formalized as policy or procedure, was taken advantage of by the previous administration. And now, in order to actually formalize all of those into policies and procedures, whether it's the football or whether it's security clearances or um, thorough background checks, you know, they have to go back to the beginning and figure out where are all the loopholes, because that is what Trump is so good at. You know, like we're going to talk about with the Atlanta case, they just find the loophole and they exploit it to their own benefit. But going back to the Jimmy Carter point that the the letter writer wrote, and I I think it's a really thoughtful letter, thinking back to those days, though, part of the push um, against Carter in in what Reagan did an amazing job in in sort of capturing was – was the frustration of the sense of powerlessness that we were that, that we as a country were feeling because of the hostage situation in Iran, because of the situation with with OPEC um, limiting our, the gas supply. I mean, you think if you think about that that period in time, um, there there was there there was a, a, a loss of face and an anger at 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 was probably one of the, the kindest, um, most decent human beings that we've ever elected as president in, in Jimmy Carter. But defense, the sense was that he was weak. And this is the challenge back for, for Biden is that Biden can't look like he's Carter weak, even if he's doing all of the, the right and just and moral things, because um, he won't get reelected. All right. Let's go to a couple of letters and then we'll take a break at the top of the hour. 
Anna writes to us, treacherous has several meanings in addition to dangerous. Wouldn't the House Republicans love to use a couple of the other meanings like being treasonous and untrustworthy? That from the Webster's New World <laughs> Dictionary. We go to uh, Susan. Can you please include in the discussions the seeming fact that the drone that hit the U.S. base may have eluded U.S. tracking and was allowed to enter the base. I don't claim to understand this, but I've heard news stories about an enemy drone that was perceived to be a friendly drone. We, we talked about this at some yeah. at some length yesterday, and, and basically we were one of the questions I had was, is this human error, is this computer error? And the answer was both. Yeah. Um, but... And the other question I had was, is is this something that they're trying to do, or is this was just this an accident? Um, but, Bob, you can probably explain it a little I, bit better. Yeah, and I will claim right now that I, I have no access to, to any other information than what's open source. But, you know, what, what I'm sort of piecing together is that the, the, the drone that, that killed the service people and, and um, wounded so many of, uh, of them mimicked at least mimicked what our drones looked like so rather than than interdict it rather than to make the decision either through through computerized systems digital systems or by 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 human intervention they said oh that's one of ours so we're not going to shoot it down so that was that was a gap that um the the that that was exploited and it was exploited at the loss of life. So yeah, that is definitely going to cause a change in um, in, in response policy. My, my understanding was that there was another drone that was expected to be returning to base at the same time, an American right. drone. So right. two drones. So they mistook it for one. They were expecting to mm-hmm. to it to came sh- in almost at in. the exact same moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which isn't a coincidence, though. I would I would sure. argue that that that's not a coincidence. That this was this was a, a well planned attack yeah we'll take a break when we come back we'll continue our conversation we welcome you panel at wamc.org panel at wamc.org first ray graff with news good morning welcome back to the roundtable and to our panel discussion for this wednesday morning the 31st of january one month down yeah hard to believe one month down I, i so now i think officially we no longer can say happy new year you know, I started the month um, thinking I'm only going to put Happy New Year in my email, uh, you know, salutations for the first week, and then just continued. And now we're finally at the end of January. So, you know what, though? I also, I love Mondays, and I Oof. might be a person who, who loves Januaries. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like I think... perpetually optimistic in like the most nihilistic way possible. <laughs> wow, I love days, it when they're huh? That's such a lights. strange perversion. That's, I know, yeah. I know. There's probably a term for I'm that. A real weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was just me because I'm Canadian and I love skiing, like downhill, cross country. Like I just so I love winter. When you live in a place like the Berkshires, I know in the city it makes life a lot more complicated. So, but I used to think I was alone. But I have a I have a sister winter lover. Yes. Exactly. That's good, uh, good times. Says the man who's about to go to Florida. No, <laughs> as, a, as a beginning lover, I don't know if it's winter so much as beginnings. Yeah, I think you have a clean oh, slate, like, like much like on a Monday. Like the Mondays. Yeah, yeah it's it, oh. no, that's absolutely. I, that's yeah. I think that's that's absolutely true. 
Um, I'm still not buying what you're selling, but um, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you're the first Monday lover <laughs> yes. that I think I've ever met. Well, we were at an event on Thursday night, and we were all still saying, because we haven't seen these people since the holidays, and you, you say Happy New Year, and then we all look at each other going, I, I don't know, is it still the New Year? And we said, well, we'll do it till February 1st, then we'll stop. So, now, I'm sta- now I find myself saying in emails, I hope your 2024 has started off well. Yes, well, that's, that's good. Like the that's I appreciate that's the social contract that's happening right now, like where <laughs> Deciding together that we can stop yeah, saying we okay? Happy New Year. <laughs> we came, yes. Um. Just another service for W from WAMC. Remember that during the can, during the fun drive. Can we week. collectively just stop asking about their children? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> all right. Um, let us go from the uh, the situation that is happening in uh, Israel. Um, and the war, and let us go to the um, the immigration issue and the border. Happier topics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a major article in the New York Times, uh, How the Border Crisis Shattered Biden's Immigration Hopes and Examination of President Biden's Record Reveals How He Failed to Overcome a Surge in New Arrivals and Political Obstacles in Both Parties. I call it a major article because uh, there are three reporters working on this. And I I just want to read the first couple of paragraphs of this New York Times piece. On President Biden's first day in office, he paused nearly all deportations. He vowed to end the harsh practices of the Trump administration, show compassion toward those wishing to come to the United States and secure the southern border. For Mr. Biden, it was a matter of principle. He wanted to show the world that the United States was a humane nation, while also demonstrating to his fellow citizens that government could work again. But those early promises have largely been set aside as chaos engulfs the border and imperils Mr. Biden's re-election hopes. The number of people crossing into the U.S. has reached record levels, more than double than in the Trump years. The asylum system is still all but broken. On Friday, in a dramatic turnaround from those early days, the president implored Congress to grant him the power to shut down the border so he could contain one of the largest surges of uncontrolled immigration in American history. If given that authority, Mr. Biden said in a statement, I would use it the day I sign the bill into law. Some of the circumstances that have created the crisis are out of Mr. Biden's control, such as the collapse of Venezuela, a surge in migration around the world, and the obstinance of Republicans who have tried to thwart his efforts to address the problems. They refused to provide resources, blocked efforts to update laws, and openly defied federal officials charged with maintaining security and order along the 2,000-mile border. I wanted to get to the story yesterday. I'm glad we get to it today. But this notion of the president looking for the power to shut down the border. Bob? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable if you think about it. If, if you said six months ago or nine months ago that, the, that the, the Democratic administration would be asking for these powers, you would have said, no, not at all. Um, I, I, I do think that while... The initial goals of the administration may have been noble, and you have to remember he was replacing policies that were in place, like the the separation and, and basically caging of children. Um, that it it did swing too far, um, and there were warning signs that were were, were being um, flagged for 
his advisors um, from folks in, in the Customs and Border Patrol and, and, and Homeland Security, which were ignored. I will also say that this is this has become um, hyper politicized, um, Joe. And if you think about it, um, what else? What else could the Republicans hit him on right now? The the economy is 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 strong. Gas prices are down. Manufacturing is up. Um, the infrastructure bill is, is finally kicking in. I mean, there's there so many good things going on that they, they needed to have something to, 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 to hit him about the head and neck. And, and when you say, well, you know, this isn't just manufactured. No, it's, it's a crisis on the uh, it, it is definitely a crisis, but it's also in part magnified and, and, and amplified by, you know, frankly, illegal activities by people like Ron DeSantis and, and um, Greg Abbott in Texas, who who I, I think, frankly, have, have violated um, federal law and, and should be be held accountable. Um, the way it's it, it's going right now, un, un, unless there is something dramatic that turns, this is going to be a big. This is going to be a big part of of the of the election in in November. Um, and unfortunately for Biden, this is one of these ones where no matter what he does, he's going to isolate a group that he needs. Nick? Yeah, I think what's interesting um, are the conversations between the Biden administration and Mexico's uh, government because they're also facing um, a border crisis, their own borders, because people are, are who are coming into the U.S. are much smaller percentage are from Mexico, much larger percentage are from Guatemala and Venezuela. And so I know, our, for example, our administration is working with that country to repatriate people before they get to the U.S. border. Um, so I'm curious kind of what, it, what, what Biden means by the power to shut down the borders and more interested in the assistance that we're, we're providing to Mexico to help them even prevent people from getting to the border in the first place. So it will be, mm. I think we do need to have more conversations about that and hear more about those specific plans, what that actually looks like on the ground. Yeah, and to take that even further, unless you want to take a break. No, I'm and, good. Um, to take that even further, I think it's it's worth trying to figure out. You know, can are there more diplomacy? Are there is there some sort of reengagement we can have because the migrant issue isn't going to stop. These are people who need to leave their countries for survival reasons, economic reasons, some sort of traumatic reasons. You know, and so what can we do? Either as a country, as a nation, as a as a member of the of the global community, to tackle that because that is the root of the issue, right? Is that people need or want to leave, and so what can we do to try to um, tackle the issue from that side? So working with Mexico, working with, and I know that that's very complicated. There's much to unpack around that, um, but that does need to be part of the solution. I wonder if the shutting down the border is a sort of bluff, is a, is a sort of like, um, you know, uh, action to, to reveal what the Republicans are, you know, okay, fine, then give me the power and I'll shut it down. Um, so I do think it's a good strategy on the part of Biden to like go, OK, I'll do it if you give it to me to try to call their bluff around keep making it such a political issue. I think what bothers me, though, Joe, is, you know, let me toss these issues onto the table for 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 us and the panelists and the letter writers. What is 
the right number of, of immigrants that should be brought into this country. Because here's the inconvenient truth, okay? Our birth rates are not keeping up with with the type of workforce that, that we, we need right now, let alone in the future. Without immigration, we are not going to have the, the, the workforce that, that, that we need in order to, to continue to, to prosper and grow. So what... How, what is the number? What is the, what is our approach to allow people into this country who we want to to assimilate in and, and become part of part of the great, fabric of the country? Yeah. We're not having that conversation. We say, oh, we're going to shut down the border. What does that mean for trade? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for slowing down the logistics pipeline? What does that mean for more expensive um, um, uh, uh, goods and services. I mean, all of these issues are, are tied with the border. So this this sort of knee-jerk reaction of, oh, we're going to shut the border, A, how do you do it? But think about all of these other impacts and, and where are those conversations occurring? And then you pair this on to the fact that 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 that, that idiot Donald Trump is is purposely trying to, to scuttle any conversation between the 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 Republican and, and Democratic Party to come up with at least initial steps is um, adding to this. Well, and the other the other conversation that needs to be had is um, how does this influence the unhoused population? Because many of these immigrants and asylum seekers get added to those numbers. Yeah. So in my mind, tackling both of the issues and, and solving that larger issue of how do you get people out of poverty? How do you move people up the um, scale of having some sort of life with the basic necessities that we all need because it's also politicized about like, oh, we're taking care of these quote unquote people who are coming from other countries. What about quote unquote our own people who are living on the streets? It's all interconnected. And if we could have that larger conversation on the one hand of dealing with the root issue of why these people are coming here and what can we do as a country to contribute to stopping that with the uh, other end of the spectrum of like, okay, when they're here, how do we take all of those folks and our unhoused population and how do we lift all of them up? Like the resources and the infrastructure and the conversations around that would lead to jobs being filled, people being educated for trades. Um, It would ultimately benefit everybody. But I don't think politically there's a lot of benefit to having that. And it would take a lot of time and effort and resources um, and focusing on as as a priority. So while we might think, you know, yes, I agree that what DeSantis and, and um, Abbott did was really a below the belt, honestly, it did give us all the understanding of what states like Texas are dealing with. And it is beyond their capacity to deal with all of these people coming across the border. And they do require federal aid. And that was and don't forget, it's very different if you're a Haitian refugee or, um, you know, a Guatemalan refugee getting dropped off in Martha's Vineyard or the Berkshires versus getting dropped off in Los Angeles or New York City. You're going to have a very different experience in terms of your pathway into the United States. And that's not fair either. So there's so many complexities around the conversation conversation that it needs to be addressed from all angles. And that requires time, effort, resources, infrastructure, and it's an urgent issue. So that becomes challenging to accomplish. I think in, um, so in sort of a political sense, so the vast majority of federal dollars are um, specifically prohibit use for uh, 
undocumented immigrants and people who are, don't have a citizenship or legal status in the U.S. And in states like Texas, where they don't have a social safety net that adds additional resources beyond what the federal government provides, the state itself has decided not to provide any kind of funding or systems or programs to help people who fall out of the, the federal uh, eligibility criteria. So um, when you have a homeless population who are eligible for certain kinds of public benefits, and in New York, those benefits are much broader because we add state resources and local resources, but in Texas they are not, the the uh, the pie is much smaller because the pie is only of federal resources, which are over the decades have been statutorily prohibitive for using mm-hmm. uh, with with uh, for for undocumented people. My own program, m- much of our um, funding is not permitted, and as an organization, we're not permitted to serve undocumented people. Um, and we actually are only permitted to serve people who are citizens except under limited circumstances like uh, human trafficking and victims of certain kinds of crimes. And you see that with um, public housing and shelter allowances, um, you know, food stamps, a bunch of programs. And so then you get to the state level where New York State has these additional resources that kind of try to fill those gaps. But the pie is just so small, right, because there are so many limits on the other sources of funding. So... You know, I do think there's a lot of ways you could, like, relieve the pressure by giving more flexibility to the funding that we have um, as a service provider. But uh, ultimately, the resources weren't adequate for the uh, vulnerable and low-income people to begin with um, that, we, that we have. And the people who are experiencing homelessness were already in a housing crisis. Um, and so this is just adding you know, additional uh, strains on those on those services and programs and, but, but, and opportunities. But, but there should also be, mm-hmm. I, I think, a national reckoning on how critical the, the immigrant and undocumented population is to key elements of our economy that we never want to talk about. Okay. I'm thinking about all the garbage that was that DeSantis and Republicans pulled down in Florida, and you, you saw a, a number of populations leave the state and their construction industry basically dried up. You, you start to think about the hospitality industry and, and the, the, the culinary fields, and you start to think about farming and, and agriculture, and you start to think about the slaughterhouses, and you start to think about things that we that we as Americans have sanitized and don't think a lot about. You don't think about how the chicken gets from the, 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 the farm to the processing plant. It, it, it comes in, in this neat little wrapped bundle. There's a lot of people doing a lot of really dirty jobs. These are not people who are, are taking jobs away from Americans, but we, we, we purposely turn a blind eye to what they mean for the economy. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, you know, that, that's a continued American sin there. We are seeing more headlines highlight what is happening to local economies without immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, the New York Times had an article about about Florida construction sites being um, vacant because of the new E-Verify requirements that DeSantis signed into law. So I think, I think those pains are going to start to be felt um, by voters more broadly this year because of the recent laws enacted in states that are really taking a hard line at, uh, about immigration, and I think that 
that will add to the voices here in, in this election cycle for sure. And let's also recognize like the, you know, as a Canadian, I have to like the immigrants that are coming that are actually educated as doctors and scientists and, you know, uh, educators and can contribute to to all of those evolutions in these really important fields. So they're not just workers coming in to clean up our garbage or, um, you know, help the chickens lay the eggs like these are folks that can actually fill really desperate need for doctors and veterinarians and scientists and business managers and all of these other jobs that we are also struggling to fill and we're also struggling to have multiple perspectives represented in those roles and so it's only to our benefit and i i'm really going to reflect on what you said bob about like what are the jobs that we need in the next 10 years and like how what how many people do we need to bring in because Canada does think about that a lot and you also I saw you are what you eat on Netflix and now you've got me thinking it's like I thought oh gosh I have to have a plant-based diet because when you do start thinking about where all of this stuff comes from it really for me changed my perspective on where I'm gonna buy my meat (laughs) I'm just curious Nick in in your in your work um with Legal Aid Society are are do you see a reflection in your day-to-day work as to what's happening on the border? We get calls every single day um, looking for help or direction or you know any resources um, by people who are arriving to Albany, either seeking uh, refugee status um, or protected status or who are undocumented. So we, there is certainly a crisis here in the capital region. Um, we provide some assistance in very limited circumstances to folks who call us who are not citizens, but largely we have to refer them to other uh, partners and community groups, some of whom you know we partner with for that purpose, um, eviction cases for people who are undocumented, things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we deal with this um, daily, f- for sure. And there's about a dozen other organizations in the capital region that are on the ground helping people find shelter because it's the middle of winter and they have nowhere to stay tonight. And I think everybody is is um, a few degrees separated from, I know in the Berkshires over the past 18 months, I've had direct connections to Afghan refugees, Ukrainian refugees, and now Haitian um, you know, asylum seekers. And because Massachusetts is a, is a shelter state, you know, and so uh, just before the holidays, there was a call out from Bridge, local social justice organization, because there's 40 Haitian immigrants who are being put up by the um, Massachusetts government locally in the Berkshires and, you know, to come together and they needed baby carriages and everything, winter clothes, you know, and, um, they're eager to work. They're eager to learn English. They're eager to, you know, they're shell-shocked by the cold, but they're eager to figure out how they can move forward. Yeah, there's a um, a severe shortage of immigration attorneys who work in legal services. So the Legal Project, for example, um, is does work with these populations and provides um, legal assistance to folks, but they haven't been able to fill uh, their immigration attorney positions because the way they're funded does not uh, provide competitive salaries. And so, you you know, asylum cases are extremely difficult. They're time-consuming. They require a tremendous amount of research um, and document review and document preparation, and those packets can be, you know, several inches thick. And uh, we just do not have access to funding that pays for the legal work that goes into successful asylum cases. And 
um, even though Albany is an asylum sort of designated, uh, I don't know, I don't know what it's called. But Sanctuary City? No. Um, we have a USCRI office here, and okay. we've kind of been a home or a location that a lot of um, uh, refugees and asylum seekers have have been sent to, I guess, mm-hmm. or to start from to, here. To start from here, yeah. Um, and and I think USCRI has like one or two attorneys on staff. I mean, it's just it's just ter- wildly understaffed. Un- understaffed in in the legal field, and they're really complicated cases. All right. With that, we'll take a break and uh, try to uh, comprehend all of that. We'll do that when we come back. Uh, we'll try to comprehend the horrors of the world and. Can we is. start how 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 positive and optimistic and well, what a want, great mood we were in this yeah, morning? Yeah, no, I, I want to talk about Elmo. Uh, we'll oh. talk about Elmo. We'll talk we'll talk about that story when we come back and uh, and sort of dig in a little bit into uh, the the results uh, that that we've seen as a as simply putting how you doing today? <laughs> well, uh, the the poor little Muppet wasn't expecting that. We'll we'll be back right after this short break. Good morning. Welcome back to the roundtable and to our panel discussion this morning. Our last go around with this group, we have about 15 minutes or so to uh, talk to them about what is happening in our world. We'd love to hear from you. Panel at WAMC.org. Panel at WAMC.org. Let me go to um, the story that we've been kind of teasing all uh, morning, and that is uh, that of Elmo. And this, as I said, this is a this is a social media story. This is a culture story. This is a mental health story, and it is, uh, I think, a maybe a mirror of of what we're how we feel and and our existence. And um, so, again, it's also a story that is. I think getting a lot of play in the sense of it's on the front page of just about every newspaper this morning because I think it tells us a lot. And, and be, also, Elmo, Taylor Swift aside, I think Elmo is one of our biggest celebrities. And when, <coughs> um, and when we see Elmo bummed out, we, we tend to feel... Uh, we, fin- we tend to feel somewhat gutted. It was a Monday morning. I'm reading from the Washington Post coverage of this story. It was a Monday morning at the end of a long January, a double whammy of devastation. And Elmo had a question. Elmo is just checking in, the beloved Sesame Street character wrote on social media. How is everybody doing? That was the question. How is everybody doing? Well, not well, apparently. And maybe really bad. Celebrities, news outlets, Sesame Street characters accounts, and everyday people replied. Many with existential dread, despair, and exhaustion. By Tuesday mornings, uh, by Tuesday morning, yesterday morning, Elmo's post on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, had received more than 110 million views. Resisting the urge to tell... Elmo, that I'm kind of sad, wrote the actress Rachel Zegler. Many others did not resist that urge, writing about seasonal depression and a never-ending winter, a deadly war that's potentially widening in the Middle East, losing their jobs amid mass layoffs in tech and other sectors, and 
even heartbreaking playoff defeats just before the Super Bowl. We've We've been better, Elmo, wrote the Detroit Free Press in response to the Detroit Lions failing to the San Francisco 49ers. While there was plenty of banter among the responses, the overall tone also reflected a sense of hopelessness that appears to be common in America in January of 2024. The widespread engagement comes during a growing mental health crisis affecting millions across the country and world as half of U.S. adults report being lonely and more and more people see the mental health of those around them deteriorating. In 2022, the U.S. launched the 988 suicide line that connects callers directly to trained crisis counselors as one way of addressing the issue. After millions of views, Sesame Street's official account replied with links to mental health resources as suicide has become a leading cause of death among people age. And catch this. I, and mm. I knew this, but to see it in print is um, really striking. As suicide has become a leading cause of death among people age 10 to 14. 10. Sesame Workshop has sought to address the mental health of children and their families in videos, podcasts, and courses. Thank you, Elmo, for checking in with a, a, with a reminder for us to pause and take a mindful moment to focus on how we're feeling, Sesame Street's official account wrote for emotional well-being resources and more. Visit Sesame, uh, Sesame Workshop and sesame.org slash mental health. Aaron Bisman, the vice president of audience development for Sesame Workshop, Sesame Street's parent company, said in a statement that the grown-ups, quote-unquote, running the Sesame Street characters' accounts know that so many people have unique, sometimes nostalgic relationships with Elmo, Cookie Monster, Oscar, and more. That allows them to promote mental health resources for kids to a wide array of people. Elmo is the lovable furry monster audiences have a deep connection with, Bisman said, He's a good friend asking simply, how are you doing? Well-known brands from Chipotle and Shake Shack to Firefox and Sony responded to the original post, too, with an eye toward marketing deals to sadden users who could use a burrito or a shake or the Internet to make them feel better. Sesame Street characters, including Oscar the Grouch, Cookie Monster, who complained that he would be better if he had more cookies, and Big Bird also joined the dreadful fun. So um, a smaller number of users wrote that they were surprisingly actually doing well, and um, but that kind of response was the exception as the fluffy red character was inundated with doom and gloom. It really shows two things. One, that this post-pandemic climate change, war-ridden, divisively political um, financially difficult time is feels like one of the hardest times ever, if not the hardest time ever. And I know every generation has had different existential crises where they were hiding on their, their desks or different things that they thought was going to affect the earth. But to have, I think, climate change and the fact that there's a young generation who genuinely don't know if the earth is even going to be around when they're my age is, is just something we've never dealt with before. And after the last few years that we've been through, we've underestimated the effect on adolescents' mental health of having to learn from home for a few years. And um, there's also 
on the flip side, there it shows how important it is to check in on people, and it shows that people are. Um, I hope there's a positive outcome around like a rise in emotional intelligence, a rise on talking openly about how about feelings, about working through stuff, about the normality of mental health, right? You go to the doctor if you break your arm. Why don't you go to your doctor if something's going on in your brain? This has been such a taboo topic, and the fact that millions of people are weighing in shows that there's a, a newfound, that that stigma is being removed, that there's an opening to a, a, a way of healing, a way of normalizing talking about this, but we're very much at the beginning of that. So people have to learn the skills of walking through the world in some kind of with healthy mental health strategies and figure it. And a big part of that is social connections, is asking people how they're doing, in investing in your relationships, in building strategically a community of support, of figuring out how to support folks that you see don't have that. And we hear that from people who live a long life, that the quality of your relationships and social connection, I think, is the single most um, is the single definer of of how happy you'll be at the end of your life. And so it, it doesn't surprise me that folks said that. And I just hope there'll be a lot more people going around genuinely saying, you know, how are you doing and really taking the time to listen to the answer. Again, I was I was struck by the fact that it was it was the. I think part of the story is that it was the response to to Elmo. I, I think there is, as in the article that I I read, the, the, there is that nostalgic um, connection that there's we have. There's trust to and these, safety. There's trust and safety to these characters, and I, and I've seen this, you know, I've seen this with my with my own eyes of of when a puppeteer, a muppeteer, has uh, um, has Elmo on their hand. That the children and adults are looking at Elmo; they're not looking at the mm-hmm. at, at the Muppeteer, and there there is a there is a trust in in that character. And and I and I and I hope you're right, Kristen. I hope that people do more people ask how are you doing, and more people respond honestly. But I think the fact that you have somebody that does have that level of trust and to to be so in so many different feeds and in so many different people's lives whether they be very young or mm-hmm. older much older in some cases uh sesame street's been around almost 60 years that you that you respond i think there's a interesting coincidence there's an opinion article uh essay in the times today titled uh, We Were Wrong About What Happened to America in 2020. And it's um, it kind of talks about the mental health and like emotional well-being of Americans um, who, you know, felt a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety and stress around the COVID pandemic, but more around the way our institutions failed to make people feel safe mm-hmm. and failed to ensure any kind of confidence in our the support structures that are supposed to make us feel safe and supported, right? And one of the things that stood out to me and something that stands out to me with this Elmo um, conversation is that loneliness, there's a particular kind of loneliness that's specific and unique to America and Americans that I think has um, been... A, been accentuated by the pandemic and and probably deepened in many ways and to me seeing tens of thousands of people put their deepest feelings on social media 
to a stranger anonymously or not anonymously um, sort of highlights for me that people have that sense of loneliness that there's they haven't unloaded that feeling to somebody else to a friend or a therapist or a counselor or their doctor or their partner Um, and I, I think those two things are really really closely connected and really interesting. The only thing I would, I would, any, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think it's not a stranger though. I think that, that, it, that it, people it feel deeply connected to, to, Elmo. to Elmo. But, but mm-hmm. they're on social media is a stranger. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. On and the you, other hand, it's social media. It, people have felt more comfortable sharing their, their thoughts. And because it can be easier to, to write that out than to have to sit in a room with a therapist or sit in a room with a, a loved one and express like what's actually going on under the surface. We have not been conditioned to actually talk about what's going on. Leave your, leave your stuff at the door, you know, like buck up like we really are conditioned to put on a brave face to put on a happy face so this is a tentative step of like mm-hmm. vulnerability what will happen if i share what's actually going on for me and what happens is you get supported by resources you get told go here and get some help you get affirmation that you're not alone you get all of these things that we know to be true when a person can be courageous and share vulnerably about what's actually going on it always well, i can't say always but it does seem to lead to a deeper sense of connection less loneliness more sense of community and and more self uh confidence more self esteem more self you know Uh, more gratitude, and it changes how one functions. During the pandemic, I took that Dr. Lori Santos happiness class. Like, she was offering it to everybody. Um, And it had, like, you... you, it talked about what are the things we need to to feel happy in life. And they're they're all things that, you know, we can all achieve. Um, But they do take time and effort. But it's social connections, time affluence, mind control, healthy practices, and kindness. And Elmo showed kindness. I, I, I want to check in on you. How are you doing? I'm just I'm ner- I'm worried that that those brief and f- like kind of fleeting moments of connectedness um, feed like an endorphin response, but aren't a true connectiveness because I don't know that 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 those people actually the folks who received resources and support that they have a- any re- resource or support yeah. beyond a post and they're. You know, I don't want it to distract from the need to fully fund and support access to mental health and counseling and um, changing how we talk about mental health to, you know, be just a healthier relationship with providers and with those kind of services. But um, but also that that there's this moment where we're seeing this this folks expressing and sharing their trauma, but there's not like a long term solution there either it's not like elmo can can really connect on the ground with them i i I just think um, bob i want to hear your your thoughts on this i i just it it seems like everyone should stop and just for however long and it may take a really long time to figure out what's going on that the leading cause of death amongst Mm -hmm. 10 year olds is suicide what it is about our culture and society that are leading young people from 10 to 14 to take their own life and to think that there is nothing to live for at such 
an age. And and um, and I I think, you know, hopefully if if this does anything, this post, it it does put that on the radar for people to realize that this really is uh, an issue that, of course, teachers and educators see all the time. Yeah, you almost wish that you you could institute um, a, a a forced national shutdown for a day where um, you know to sort of take Bloom County. Um, everybody needs to go out and take a dandelion break. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it needs to be integrated into the day to day, right? To to Nick's point, like one one day isn't yeah. going to do it, but it is it is continuing to work with those young people in schools and well. We need to have people take care of themselves, and we hope that uh, this is the uh, the impetus to uh, to do it. For uh, for more context, um, suicide rates among adolescents has more than doubled, and in some areas, tripled in the last uh, ten years. With that, we uh, end the segment this morning. I thank you all for being with us. It's very nice to have you on the program, and. Um, Hell of a way to end, but there we go. Um, it opens the door to really good, healthy possibilities in the future to continue to figure out how to help around it. Kristen Van Genhoven, Bob Griffin, and Nick Rangel, thank you all very much. You're listening to The Roundtable and WAMC.